0: Looking at that. We're going to be in John chapter 4 as we continue in our series on uh, the book of John. Uh, Here's what we're actually going to do we're going to get to chapter 6, and then uh, at the beginning of Lent is chapter 6, and then we are going to fast forward to the end of the book. Um, And so, you know, we do this Netflix binging through the Bible there's gonna kind of be this brief moment where we see the season finale and then we go back to the middle of the series, okay? Um, But it felt weird to skip over the crucifixion passages when it's that time. And then we'll have our Good Friday service and be dwelling in that, our Easter service, which this year will be our first Easter service ever as a community. Our first year we did Easter Saturday, which was weird. And then we did uh, just a Good Friday last year. So I'm excited to do Good Friday and Easter uh, together. And then, so once we kind of get through the crucifixion narratives after Easter, then we will jump back into John seven and kind of look at the book then um, as it kind of talks about these two important pieces of who Jesus is, his birth, and then his death and resurrection. And how does that kind of inform chapters roughly seven through 17? We'll get there by the end of June. And then who knows what July holds? So. Um, I'm thinking this summer we'll be preaching on prayer, but we'll see where that takes us. So uh, John 4, if you wanna grab one of those paperback Bibles underneath you to follow along, um, I've been just really convicted that on the one hand, it's really great to put it all on the screens, but also we're gonna, uh, but I want you in the text with your fingers, but also we're gonna put some TVs up there and the lang- I don't know what that's gonna look like yet. So we're kind of just gonna be training ourselves to either Google it or whatever. All right, stop talking about stupid stuff, Kyle. John 4, let's pray. Um, Jesus, we pray for Joey and Julia that the week ahead and as they kind of are starting to move toward the wrapping up of their month that uh, you would just give them a clear sense of direction and calling. I pray for these conversations that they're going to be having with the leadership of this organization about uh, returning and short and long-term perspectives. And we just pray, Jesus, that you would give them a lot of wisdom and clarity. We ask the same for us tonight too, Jesus, that as we look at this text, we would find ourselves in it but that we would also find you in our midst uh, to encourage and equip us uh, to follow after you. We believe that wherever God's word is explained, his voice is heard. And so help us to hear your voice, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The blazing heat of the noonday sun beat down on their heads, and the blasts of hot wind dried their skin and made their lips crack. Their mouths were dry, their bodies were worn, their feet were tired, they were hungry, they were thirsty. Why Jesus had asked them to go through Samaria on their way back to Galilee and not around like every rational person would do, the disciples never really knew, but they had started to get to this place with Jesus where he was always asking them to do weird things. And so they had, for the most part, stopped asking questions and just started going along with it. But now Jesus is dragging them through Samaria, Samaria, in the middle of the day. And as they come to a village named Sychar, Jesus looks at the disciples and he instructs them to go into the village and buy food and drink. Samaria. We are in Samaria, and now you want us to go where, Jesus? You want us to do what, Jesus? Uh, The attitude that the disciples have can be summed up in this phrase, do I really have to? Do I really have to go into the village? Do I really have to talk to these people? Do I have to buy something from them? Do I have to make their livelihood for them? Can't we just, I don't know, Jesus, can't you just do a miracle or something and give us what we need? No, no, no. Jesus sends them into the village and As they drag their feet and pout on the way, Jesus stays by the well. Jesus stays by the well. And the text says that he is tired. And the text says that he is thirsty. The Son of God, the Word incarnate, is thirsty, is tired. As he sits there in the noonday sun, a woman, a Samaritan woman, walks toward the well, carrying her water jar in the noontime of the day when the heat is at its hottest, when the sun is at its highest. And in just a sentence with just a handful of words, Jesus breaks every rule possible. Jesus breaks every social and ethnic and racial and religious rule ever there was when he looks at a Samaritan woman by a well near a village named Sychar in Samaria. He looks at the Samaritan woman and he simply says this, please give me a drink. Please give me a drink. In my mind's eye, this woman nearly drops her water jug because look at what she says in chapter four, verse nine. The woman was surprised, you think? She was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? This woman is surprised because Jews as a rule do not interact with Samaritans. Jews and Samaritans, you need to understand, shared some common ancestry through one of Jacob's sons, Joseph's children, okay? And and so they shared some common ancestry, and yet uh, a few hundred years earlier, when the kingdom of Israel was divided north and south, and the Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdom, they carried away most of the Jews that lived there, but those that stayed behind, intermarried with the pagan nations around them in contradiction to the law of Moses. And so now Jews view them as less than. Jews view them as half-breeds. Jews view them as ethnically and ritually unclean. The best cultural equivalent to this for Harry Potter fans is that Samaritans are mudbloods. They're disgusting they're unclean, they're gross, and yet here we find Jesus talking not only to a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. A Samaritan woman. Listen, a Jewish man never spoke to a woman of any ethnicity unless, you know, he was interested in doing more than just talking to her. And if you don't know what I mean by that, kids, go home and ask your mom. I mean, Jews don't talk to women, and they most certainly do not talk to Samaritan women. I mean, talk about less than, less than. This person is basically non-existent in the culture in which Jesus lives. And yet here Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well. Ever since Isaac and Jacob in the book of Genesis met their wives at a well, wells kind of became the pickup place in the ancient Near East. Okay, and so here's, here's your equivalent. We have Jesus in a nightclub talking to a woman his mom and dad would not approve of, his pastor wouldn't like, and his friends would look down upon because of her ethnicity. This is where we find Jesus And he asks her, give me a drink. He puts himself in the position of need. And she says, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus quickly moves from the temporal to the eternal, from the mundane to the spiritual. Look at what he does in verse 10. He says, if you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Jesus does similar to what he does last week with Nicodemus. You'll remember Nicodemus in John three, he says, you must be born again to this religious insider, right? And Nicodemus says, how can an old man Climb back into his mother's womb and be born again. To which our response is, I don't know, Nicodemus. That sounds like a personal problem. You know what I mean? I actually, I, this is terrible. But I've since been thinking about that scene in in um, Ace Ventura: Pet Detective, when he emerges from the rhino's bottom in reverse. That's kind of what I've been thinking about lately. And and so he says, How can a man be born again? And Jesus, Jesus. But in that moment, I'm sorry, it's been in my head. They they don't. <laughs> no they don't i love you guys and they don't they 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 reveal themselves to be talking about different things right nicodemus is like talking about one thing jesus is talking entirely about another and the same thing is happening here because he says uh, he's taking this normal thing this living water and trying to point use her physical thirst to point to her spiritual thirst so a couple of things first of all we talked last week we're kind of looking at these conversations as models for how we would have conversation with with our friends right you wanna to listen to the real need or you wanna help them identify their real need. As you're having a conversation with them, what's the spiritual need of the person that you're talking to? This, Jesus identifies that there's a spiritual thirst that this woman has. But Jesus does the thing that I tell you all the time not to do. What do I tell you not to do? I say, don't be at a restaurant. And when the waiter comes and says, would you like some more water? Don't slide the cup toward him and say, did you know that Jesus is the living water? Uh, And and if you drink of him, you'll never be thirsty again. Jesus does that very thing. So this is one of those rare instances. Do as Jesus like says, not as he does, or do as he does, not as he says or something, right? And, and, And at the very least, Jesus is allowed to be awkward. You're not. Um, Jesus tries to, helps this woman discover her spiritual need. Jesus says, you must be born again to Nicodemus. And to her, he says, you, if you knew the gift that God had for you, I would give you living water and you would never be thirsty again. But again, she does like Nicodemus does in verse 11 and 12. What does she say? She says, um, she says, but you don't have a rope or a bucket. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer us better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? See, John's being ironic there, by the way. He says, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob? Uh, Yeah, I do, I'm Jesus. Uh, but, but, But Jesus looks at this and he says, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. This water, he's pointing at the well. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Jesus says, Jesus points his finger on her spiritual need. He says, you're thirsty. He uses her physical thirst to speak to a spiritual thirst. And as he does, he says that what this woman really needs is something that satisfies and quenches, and that's something that only he can provide And he says, when I get involved in your life, it will become a renewable resource. It's a spring that keeps bubbling over into eternal life. It's not something that runs out and we need to go get more. No, it keeps bubbling over. Here's what I want to tell you tonight. You've never met a person who isn't spiritually thirsty. You have never met a person that isn't spiritually thirsty you've never met a person who isn't longing deeply for someone. We were made to thirst. Hear me on this. We were made to thirst. We were made to crave. And then sin got involved and hijacked that craving. It hijacked that thirst. And so now we're running after anything and everything that would perhaps quench it. We're running after anyone and anything that would perhaps quench it. I think again, sorry for the Harry Potter imagery tonight, but remember in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince when Albus Dumbledore and Harry, they find that locket that that Voldemort wants, and so they find this cave, and there's a bowl of potion, and Dumbledore realizes that he has to drink it to get to the bottom of it. And so he says to Harry, no matter what I do, no matter what I say, you need to make sure I drink all of this. And so there's Harry scooping this potion into Dumbledore's mouth, and he is begging Harry to kill him. He is begging Harry to stop. He is thrashing and fighting because this thing that is actually, this liquid is not making him less thirsty, it's making him more thirsty. That's our souls. Our souls are just drinking things that leave us more and more thirsty, which is why the prophet Jeremiah says, they have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns, cracked wells that can hold no water at all. Jesus' conversation continues. He's going to put his finger on two symptoms of this woman's spiritual thirst, because she says, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I'll never have to come back here and get water. See, she's still not getting it. She's still thinking Jesus is saying, like talking about indoor plumbing. You remember in Hercules, when one of the, one of the fates whispers, she says, indoor plumbing, it's gonna be big, right? She th- she's thinking Jesus is pointing to indoor plumbing, and he's not, he's pointing to a spiritual replumbing. Of our whole lives and our whole hearts. And so Jesus looks at her. This is fascinating. Jesus she says, Give me this water and I'll never be thirsty again. And he looks at her and he just says, This, go get your husband. Go get your husband. And she just says, Well, actually, I don't really have a husband. And Jesus goes, You're right. He says, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. He says, you certainly spoke the truth. Jesus puts the fir- his finger on the first symptom of her spiritual thirst. He points to her sexuality, and he points to her relationships. points to her sexuality, points to her relationships. Because she has gone after guy, after guy, after guy, after guy, after guy, after guy, hoping that it will give her that sense of, I don't know what in her heart that she won't be thirsty anymore, and it's not working. Now, look at this. Jesus calls her out on her sin. When we're talking about with our friends about the gospel, eventually there has to be a putting our finger on this is the way that we're, we're not living in accordance with God. And by the way, sin is always meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. It's always meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. It's not that God doesn't want us to have intimacy or those kinds of things. It's that he says there's a legitimate way to get it. It's called the covenant of marriage. Um, and everything else is illegitimate. And that's what leaves her thirsty. Jesus talks to her about her sin, but notice this. He doesn't lead with it and he lets her bring it up. That is interesting to me that he doesn't start with, well, lady, let's talk about the ways that you're messed up he saves that for later until only, until after she starts to think, maybe I do need something. Then he actually says, well, actually you're trying to, the thing that you do need, you're trying to get in the wrong way. This is what it looks like. And then he even lets her bring it up, right? He says, go get your husband. I'm not saying that Jesus isn't being sneaky, but I'm not saying that she isn't being sneaky back. Go get your husband. Well, I don't have a husband technically common law is what I think you know she's thinking it's common law marriage and, and 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 he says you're right you don't have a husband but actually you've had five and the guy that you're living with now isn't even your husband it's her thirst talking to people about Jesus is not ramming the gospel down their throats and it is not policing their sin. It is leading with the truth, which is what Jesus does and is trying to do. But look at what she does he says, he gets a little close to the truth for her. So in verse 19, she says, you must be a prophet, which is true because he just said something that she didn't, he wouldn't otherwise know. You must be a prophet. So why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we, set, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? Listen, when it gets personal, when it gets too personal, your friends, your family members are going to go theological. When it gets personal, they're going to go conceptual. Jesus hit a little too close to home with this talk about her five husbands and her live-in dude, and so now she tries to change the subject. Let's have a theological debate over here and leave my personal issues aside, Jesus. And so what happens? Um, I'm thinking about, I'll just say their names, I'm thinking about when we started hanging out with Zach and Jenna, and we were having conversations around the gospel, and after a while, and Zach doesn't remember this part of our friendship, it's what we love about each other, and uh, Zach finally looked at us. I think it was starting to get personal, and so Zach looks at us and goes, "Um, well, Jesus is isn't the only way, is he? I mean, he's one of many ways. See, we just move from the personal to theological, right? Because it's safer over here. And I remember thinking to myself, I was about to give the true answer, but I thought to myself, well, there goes this friendship. And I said, really, for us to live as we live and believe as we believe and for us to do the work that we do, we have to believe that what Jesus says is true. And Jesus says in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. And then I also pointed out, listen, if Jesus isn't the only way, if there are multiple ways to Jesus, first of all, I can be helpful and nice to people and make a lot more money doing it. I'm just being honest. You know, I can be treated a lot better. I can, I can have a nicer office. I can have a nicer house. I can have a nicer car. I can be doing all these great things and still be helping people if Jesus isn't the only way. And if Jesus isn't the only way, let me ask you this. Why would you even be here tonight? Because then this whole exercise is self-serving because it makes you feel good. And if, and, if, and if Jesus isn't the only way, why would you have a heart that's broken for friends that don't know Jesus yet? No, but if Jesus is the only way, if there's some exclusivity to the gospel, then goodness gracious, I'm going to be really passionate about it. Goodness gracious, I'll take a lower paycheck because I'll have eternity to play in a pool or something. I, 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 but if, if Jesus is the only way, that changes everything about us. She moves from the personal to the theological. And so Jesus meets her where she's at he talks this through with her. See, she says, "I we're, we worship on Mount Gerizim, you worship in Jerusalem. You see, when the northern and the southern kingdom split, the southern kingdom kept Jerusalem, the northern kingdom didn't. So they put a fake temple on Mount Gerizim, which was destroyed about 500 BC. And so she's probably sitting at this well, and where Sychar is sitting, it's kind of in view of, the, of Mount Gerizim. There's probably the ruins they can see. And she says, you know, you Jews talk about worshiping there, uh, but we weren't talking about worshiping here. Which one is right. And look at what Jesus says. He says, believe me, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus said in John two, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. We no longer meet Jesus in a physical place. A physical location is no longer key to worship because he is our temple and we are co-heirs and co-temples with him. That the body of Christ is the temple of God. We do not need to go to a temple because we are the cornerstones. We are the living stones being built into his dwelling place. And in the flesh of Jesus, we see the glory that is revealed from the Father, John 1 says. He says, the, ta- he says, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship in the, the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. While we Jews know all about him for salvation comes through the Jews, but the time is coming. Oh, and by the way, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. The father is looking for those who will worship him that way for it is for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What Jesus is saying, uh, contrasted between Nicodemus and the woman, Nicodemus is a Jew who worships in truth without spirit. Scripture says, Jesus says about them, quoting Isaiah, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. There is no connection of the heart level with what's going on. The the Jews, it's all truth and and no spirit, no passion. On the other hand, the Samaritans, it's no truth and all passion. They don't know very much, but they can whip themselves into a frenzy about it. Listen, worship that forms us, worship that is biblical, worship that changes us, is worship that affects us at the head and the heart level. It, it, it stirs our affections, but it expands our mental categories for who the Father is. It makes our hearts warm with the gospel, but, but it also somehow molds our brains. If your worship only is like reading theology books and there's never a warmth there that is truth without passion, But by the way, you can read theology books with passion and without truth. It's it's a unification of these two things that Jesus says. He gets into the theology with her. I I liked a a commentator I'm reading for this said this. He says, though she meant to evade the subject. See, she's trying to get out of this conversation. Well, bring me your husband. Well, I don't really have a husband. Why? Um, You know, now she's trying to change the subject. It says, though she meant to evade the subject, Jesus transforms the topic into one of extreme religious as well as personal relevance. For the woman's problems transcend her personal life and extend significantly also to her people's illegitimate ways of worship. Listen, when Jesus wants to talk about spiritual thirst, he talks about relationships and sexuality, and he talks about worship. We'll get to that in a second. But why those two things? The woman says, after Jesus explains this to all her, she says, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ And when he comes, he will explain everything to us She's like, well, this is all well and good. This is nice. You're a smart guy. You've told me some things. But listen, I'm waiting for the guy that will come and explain everything to me. I'm waiting for the Messiah. She picks up a Jewish word. And then Jesus does something stunning. He does something clearly that he doesn't do this clearly anywhere else in the Gospel of John. Verse 26, Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. See, later on when we get to the conversation that Jesus has before Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate tries to get Jesus to tell him who he is. And Jesus won't do it. Jesus says, I I am exactly who said I am. But in this moment to this spiritual outsider, Jesus gets really clear. He says, I am the Messiah because I just told and explained everything to you. And watch what her, her reaction is. She goes running back to her village. It says the woman left her water jar beside the well, as if she kind of even forgot it was there. She goes running back into the village and told everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. I'm waiting for the Messiah to come and he will explain everything to us. And she goes into her village and she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. She says, could he possibly be the Messiah? So the village people came, the village people, <laughs> the people in the village, <laughs> good image though. Uh, the people in the village came streaming from the, from the village to see him. Listen, in the end, the woman is so transformed by understanding her spiritual thirst that she can't help but talk to people about it. She can't help but live it out. She can't help but shout it from the mountaintops. And hear me on this. This woman came to the well in the middle of the day by herself. Listen, there are two places where women go together, bathrooms and wells. They travel in flocks to bathrooms, they travel in flocks to wells, but this woman comes by herself because not only is she a social and ethnic and religious outcast, generally she is despised in her own village. She's gossiped about, She is slandered about, well, did you hear about so-and-so? She's on her sixth guy now. So she goes by herself, and this woman who is a reject of rejects, the lowest of the low, the outsider's outsider goes back into her village And she tells everyone, come and see a man who told me I ever did. Which, by the way, tells me that the redemption of our brokenness only then serves all that much more powerfully as a witness to the gospel. Because here is this woman whose life is a mess. And she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Listen, I don't even know if I'm super interested in the gospel. I'm like, he told you everything you ever did? I got to meet this guy. And yet the depth of her brokenness is the very foundation for the height of God's love because this is what's transforming to her and to the village. And so three things that I think we, we take from this text as it relates to our friends and our family. First is that Jesus crosses or even breaks every possible religious, social, ethnic, racial rule or barrier. He breaks them and he moves past them to help the gospel to make sense to one person. And so we find Jesus, again, in the cultural equivalent of a nightclub, talking to a woman that his mother wouldn't approve of, talking to a woman that if we knew that Jesus was out doing that last night, the religious among us wouldn't like that. Jesus, we don't go to nightclubs, you know. We don't, we don't go to bars, you know, Jesus. We, we, we go to Chick-fil-A, because it's Christian. And, and, and Jesus goes and he talks to this woman and compare this with the last chapter. Here's Nicodemus, respected in his community religiously, who just disappears in the night. We never find out if he really changes his heart or his mind. But then, but then but then here here here, here is this woman who goes sprinting back into her village because she just can't keep it in. And so at the risk of being trite, I just want to remind you lovingly that if you have never been uncomfortable for Jesus' sake, and if Jesus has never asked you to be uncomfortable, the Jesus that you're worshiping might not be the real Jesus. If the Jesus you love doesn't call you out on the waters, if it doesn't cause you to break rules, You might not be worshiping Jesus. I don't really like making much about Methodism, which which is the larger tribe I'm sometimes reluctantly associated with. But to be a Methodist is to be a rule breaker, which is remarkable because I can go and give you what our constitution as a church is. It's called the Book of Discipline and it's this big. And if you are at all having trouble sleeping, I can give you a copy no longer will be a problem for you if you use that as your bedtime reading. It's funny that rule breakers have come up with more rules than we know what to do with. And yet John Wesley, uh, at a time in England when the only place a preacher would preach is in a church, said, no, 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 no. The people that Jesus preached to are out there. And so he preached to coal miners and to people on the streets. And he broke rules. And he messed with the Church of England. I mean, we're, we're in a tribe of rule breakers. We're in a tribe of no, and so we have to ask ourselves if the people that Jesus reached aren't presently in our churches, aren't presently part of our community, are we really building a community after Jesus' own heart? We have to ask ourselves, are we getting uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel? We have to ask ourselves, who are the Samaritan women in our lives? Who are the Samaritan women in our lives? And how are we engaging with them? That's perhaps the first thing. The second thing is that we don't have the luxury of having somebody else do this. Some of us think like these disciples. Listen, they're in Samaria. Now they ha- they're thinking, do we have to really work with these people? Do we have to share the gospel with them? I mean, we really with the, I just, can't somebody else do it is what the disciples are thinking. Can it be somebody else's job to do that? and we're tempted to think the same way. How many of you drove by a church on your way to church tonight? How many of you drove, by, how many of you drove by, more, uh, by two churches on your way to church tonight? How many of you drove by more than two churches on your way to church tonight? See, it's easy as you drive by there to think, you know what, can't they do some of this? Can't like the black churches get the black people Can't like the young churches. We'll get the young people. Let the old churches get the old people. And you know, if they don't like the music the way we do it, there's probably a church over there that they can have their music, so we can have what we like here at Regen. And you know what? Uh, If they don't like this part, there's got to be another church over there. Let's just do the things that we like. Because I don't want to get messy. I don't want to deal with these people. Can I tell you the that growing edge for our life together as a community? What happens when a person from high school that I don't like? walks into my church it happens all the time Uh, what happens then can't somebody else reach them because I don't want to be uncomfortable I don't want to have to like and do I do I like say hey I'm sorry I treated you that way or do we just act like it didn't happen or I don't know do we have to become Facebook friends again it just feels weird can't we just let somebody else do that and that's the very question the disciples are asking Because the disciples find Jesus at the well with this woman. And in verse 27, it says, they were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? And yet Jesus answers their silent questions and ours. This idea, can somebody else do this? In verses 34 through 38, I'm going to read it from the message. I thought it made it clear. Jesus said, the food that keeps me going. They're like, hey, rabbi, you know, when you made us go buy this food, could you eat it now? Eat eat, Papa, eat. And Jesus said, the food that keeps me going is that I do the will of the one who sent me, finishing the work that he started. As you look around right now, wouldn't you say that in four months it will be time to harvest? Well, I'm telling you to open your eyes and take a look, good look at what's right in front of you. These Samaritan fields are ripe. It's harvest time, Jesus says. He says, the harvester isn't waiting. He's not waiting four months, he's taking his pay, he's gathering in the grain that is ripe for eternal life, and now the sower is arm in arm with the harvester, triumphant. That's the truth of the saying, this one sows and that one to I sent you to harvest a field you never worked. That's supposed to keep us humble, that's supposed to keep Kyle humble. Any success we happen to have here is not because I'm awesome. I sent you to harvest a field you never worked. Without lifting a finger, you've walked in on a field worked long and hard by others. These Samaritan fields are ripe. It's harvest time. The very people that we do not want to reach are where the ripest field and ripest harvest is. It's the very people that we don't want to have to sit in church with. Guys, I hated high school. Uh, Jenna is maybe one of the very few people that I kind of liked there. Um, all of my friends, hey, my kind of life. Um, sorry, I mean, I just did. Not, my friends were at youth group. I, I kind of felt bullied sometimes. I didn't. I not want it. I just. I didn't want to see them again. Well, now I live in Trumbull freaking County. I mean, go to Walmart. There's everybody all the time. At Walmart, And then then Jenna says, hey, do you want to do our wedding? Yeah, that's good. I like you guys now. Let's do that. And now, like, it's gotten out in Lakeview High School that I do weddings now. Do you know the fastest way we grow our church is when we do weddings for Lakeview High School graduates. I don't want to see these people again. I have to go to the reception. Oh, there's that person. Hi, how are you? But the widest field for, for me and our ministry has been the very people that I don't want to be around. And we look and say, somebody else can do that. Let, let somebody else have that work. There's churches in Cortland, they can handle it. No, Jesus says it's our job. Jesus says it's me. Jesus says it's us. He says it's our job because the field is ripe. We don't have to wait four months for the harvest. It's right now, right now. When it's harvest time, you don't know this because you're not farmers. When it's harvest time, you don't like, oh, we can handle that tomorrow. No, we go now. We go now, because this is what we've been waiting for. And so we jump at this opportunity to serve people. That's the second large point on the basis of this. And the last one is this. Everyone that you have met is spiritually thirsty. Let me put it a different way. You, even if you claim the name of Jesus, are still spiritually thirsty. And even though Jesus has canceled the power of sin, even though Jesus has given you himself, as a fountain of life that is kind of ever always satisfying your thirst, you still kind of like a little bit of Jesus water and a little bit of this water over here too. I like a little bit of Jesus water and a little bit of success water. I like a little bit of this water and I like a little bit of that water. I like a little bit of, I like a little bit of Jesus water. I like a little bit of gossip water. I like a little bit of Jesus water. I like a little bit of apathy water. I like both waters. I kind of like have two straws, and I'm sipping, and I'm sipping, and I'm sipping, and I'm sipping, and we keep finding ourselves thirsty. You've never met a person who isn't spiritually thirsty. The difference is that they, your friends that don't know Jesus, don't know that there's a whole other straw over here. And so they keep sticking their straw into all sorts of bevies, trying to see if this is the thing that's going to quench it, and it never does. It never does. And isn't it interesting? This is what blows my mind about this text is that Jesus says the two symptoms of this are how we worship and our relationships, our sexuality. In a culture that says that part of our lives, there's a kid in our room, so I'm trying to like be on it. Um, that part of our lives given free born because that's your identity and that's who you are. Just run after that is the way to be satisfied. Jesus says, no, that's not. No relationship. No kind of intimacy can satisfy the craving that you were created with. No relationship. And so we run after guy after guy after guy, or girl after girl after girl. Parents seek it out of their kids. Kids seek it out of their parents or out of their friends. We're always looking for people to validate and give name to and make us feel better inside. People can't do that, or at least people that are only people, not people that happen to also be 100% God and 100% man. We were made to receive one form of phrase that would satisfy us forever, and it was from Jesus. And, yet we and we run and we run and we run and we run and we run. And then he points to this worship thing. This is important. Because though you came tonight, you're like, God, I worship Jesus. I just had to sing three songs at a blank wall. No, 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 no. You don't only worship Jesus. Almost every person I meet is worshiping about five gods. And Jesus is one of them. But so is success, so is money. So is a hobby, so is Netflix. And so we kind of, if you ever go into an Asian restaurant, they have a God shelf, and they, and they just have a couple up there just to keep the bases covered. We have God shelves in our lives because we stick other things out, Just We got Jesus, and I got success, and, and I've got the idol in Kyle's life is to appear to be impressive. I've got a meeting this week from some bigwigs, bosses bosses and stuff like that it's no accident that we're having like a regen work night tomorrow night it's so that when they come the church looks good for them do you see what i'm saying i want to look the best but i'll tell you what worshiping at that idol usually leaves me on a on a treadmill where it is never good enough and i am up in the middle of the night thinking about the next person who doesn't like me and does and sees through this impressiveness that I'm trying to facilitate. We're all worshiping other things. People, talent, time, the way we spend those, the way we interact with those things indicate something in us that will only, only leave us thirsty. We keep going and digging into this relational well. We keep going and digging into this, this impressiveness well. We keep going and digging into this money well and digging and digging and digging and hoping that it'll hold water, but we don't know that there's a giant crack on the side of it and it's just going to keep emptying out. And this is why Augustine said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. You've never met a person who isn't spiritually thirsty. It's never happened. You've never met a person who in their restlessness isn't trying to find something, an addiction to something that doesn't try to satisfy that thirst and they keep coming up thirsty. And Jesus comes to this woman and he says, he says, I will give you living water and you will never thirst again. And so what is Jesus looking for you and me tonight? He is looking for five little words from us and they're simply this. Please give me a drink. Please give me a drink. Let's pray. Father, we're thirsty people. And we confess that we have sought after all sorts of things to quench our thirst and it's not working. And that there's some little part of us in some rare moments that maybe comes to grips with the fact that it, what if it's you? What if, what if all of these things that I say are true are true? And so Jesus, we need you to remind us again that you alone satisfy our thirsts. That when we go to you, you will meet our needs. And we're sorry, Jesus, for these other straws in our life. We're sorry for the straws that we stick into other drinks hoping that they'll make us thirsty or that we can kind of intermix Jesus, teach us to crave after you and to thirst after you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.